in chapter 2. But welcome, church family. Be praying for those that are traveling. Uh, welcome some of the ones that are back. There was a, a group that went to Alaska, uh, and a number of them are back. And uh, when they got back, they were in like 60, 70 degree weather, right, guys? And when you got to Vegas, what was it? Hot. Hot, yeah. <laughs> it was like 111 or something, someone said. And they were like, oh, and they're ready to go back to Alaska. Uh, so welcome back, guys. Glad you had a safe trip. And uh, what a welcome home, right? You know, with all this weather. But God is good. So Revelation chapter uh, 2, uh, we're looking at the seven churches. And uh, we'll begin in verses 12 through 17. Uh, let's read this passage together. Our series title is this, Listen Up. Uh, eight times in just two chapters, the Lord Jesus says, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, listen up. And so be reminded, this letter that we're studying and the message that Christ had for this church is not only for this church uh, that we're going to look at this morning, but also, he says, anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. So this is for us, and we need to listen up to what the Lord has to say for us today as well. So would you follow along with me? He says this, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write these things, says he, speaking of Christ, who holds the sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat the things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear to hear, notice what he says, he says, listen up. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. Help us to listen up. Help us to see this message that you had for this church, the church here in Asia Minor, the church of, of Pergamos. Lord, help us to, to realize that this message is a message for us today as well, for us as followers of Christ. As Jesus said, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. May he listen up to what the Spirit says to the churches. May we take heed to your words Lord, I pray that we would listen to the word of God and realize that, that the, the scriptures are so relevant. And the struggles that this church had, the church of Pergamos, is the same struggle and the same battle that we are facing even here today. And so, Father, I pray that, that, Lord, the word of God would be so relevant and that, Lord, that you would just speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Listen up, Jesus says. Listen up, listen up, listen up. Almost eight times, eight times in just a couple chapters, he says, listen, listen to what I have to say. Listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. This message today uh, to the church of Pergamos is just as relevant to Red Hills or, or any church that you may find yourself sitting in. As we're looking at this series, let me remind you, we're looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is what we would consider present-day Turkey. And John was exiled by the Roman government because he was a bishop and he was actually the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And that was the first letter he wrote. And in order to shut John up, they exiled him. According to church history and tradition, they tried to boil John in oil. They wanted to kill him, and they attempted to, to uh, make a martyr out of him, but God was not finished with him. And because the Lord preserved his life, he was then sent to the Isle of Patmos to be exiled, to be shut up, so that, so that he would not have influence or impact with the gospel. But instead, God used what they meant for evil for good. And while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, while he was there, he received the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was given this revelation. And we have what is now this beautiful book called the Book of Revelation. And while he was exiled there, God began to give him visions. And in these visions, he writes for us the Book of Revelation. Let me remind you of something as well, that in your life there will be circumstances. There will be things that come into your life that oftentimes you may think, well, well, this is meant for evil. But can I encourage you with something? Let me encourage you with the fact that God is sovereign and that God is in control. And that even when you're going through difficult times, and as John was exiled, I'm sure at first he thought, how am I going to have influence? How am I going to have impact They've, they've stripped me of my ability to, to minister to God's people. But in spite of it, God used it for his honor and for his glory. Amen? And God gave him these visions. Someone once said it like this, bloom where God has you planted. Understand that God has you where you are and under the circumstances you're in because God has a purpose and a plan. So John writes these seven letters. We looked at number one was Ephesus. The second one was Smyrna, the persecuted church. This week, number three, in the far north, which is in present-day Turkey now, he writes to a church, to a group of people in the city of Pergamos. Some refer to it as Pergamum or Pergamos. We're going to talk about this city just for a few moments. He writes to this church, a group of believers at Pergamos. The word Pergamos is the idea it means elevation, to be elevated. It was a very wealthy city, a rich city, a powerful city. It was a very diverse cultural city. In fact, it was referred to as the cultural capital in that region. It's interesting. Also, it was one of the medical capitals of that time. One of the great uh, Roman physicians made his residence. And all throughout the Mediterranean, people would come for medical care to the city of Pergamos. The word Pergamos means elevated. It was elevated. It was up on, perched up high on a, on a high hill, 
and not only elevated in, in the idea of, of its location, but also in intellect. They consider themselves to be very men of renowned wisdom and intellect, and, and it was a very powerful city. What's interesting about this, this city, Pergamos, is that um, it had a huge library. They found parchment, some of the most advanced parchments of its time in this city of Pergamos. In the city of Pergamos as well, it had a huge library. Some say between 40, but many scholars, many people say they had a library that had over 200 volumes. It was, it was a very uh, amazing city. We have some slides, some pictures. I don't know if you want to run through some of them just so you can get a picture of what Pergamos looked like. This is Pergamos as it sits up on this high hill. The library, you can see that kind of in the middle, there's this huge theater that seat, would seat thousands. But also in this city, there was a tremendous amount of what we would consider pagan worship. They worshiped the god, of course, Zeus and Apollos. They worshiped the Caesar himself. We would consider this city kind of like a university town, a university city and very culturally relevant and very, you know, the idea of, of being on the cutting edge of culture. We'll look through a few other slides, if you don't mind, Don, just so you can kind of see what this city looked like. As you look at this city, I want you to understand what goes beyond this is that this city was given over to pagan worship, had a vast amount of, uh, of pagan worship, in this city, they had numerous, not one, not two. There was at least four different temples to different gods. You can kind of see there, there's a temple on the far left. There's uh, the theater there in the middle. As you look around, there's a temple down to the lower left. There's another temple up at the top and then another temple off to the right. But then also what was in this city, might be hard for some of you to see, but in this city, they had this huge, huge altar. It was called the Pergamum Altar. It's massive. It would dwarf, it would 10 times the size of, of this facility, of this property. A huge altar where people would come from all over and they would indulge in their, in their, their, their false worship, their pagan worship. And so Christ is writing to this church that's right here in the heart of paganism, idolatry. And I want you to notice that he comforts this church, first of all, in verse 13. The very first things he does is he reminds this church and he comforts them. Notice some of the things he says. He says this. He says, I know your works. He said, I know your works. I know the work that you're doing for the Lord and that that I, I want you to know I see it. And I see uh, the, 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 the struggle that you're in. In the midst of all this pagan worship, he says, I know your works and that you're standing strong. He makes this statement where Satan's seat is, where Satan's throne is. Most scholars believe what he's saying is this, is that he's, he's referring to the Pergamum altar where people for many hundreds of miles would come to gather to, to perform these worships. These are, these are present-day pictures of that Pergamum altar. It's still there. 
And so he says, I, I see that in the midst of, of where Satan's seat is, where his throne is, he makes these comments. You see, understand that the church would have understood exactly what, what, what John is referring to, what Christ is referring to. He says, I know your circumstances. I know the adversity that, that you face. And, and in the midst of it, you're still serving me. You're still working. And he says, you hold fast my name. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus Christ and the deity of Christ. And they were loyal to who Jesus Christ was. And it's interesting, he goes so far as he says this, that you have not denied my faith. You have not, the, the, you have not denied my faith in the midst of all of this. And he says, even through the death of Antipas, our faithful servant, our faithful martyr, he says, who was killed among you. When he says killed among you, most people believe literally that while they were gathering in church, Antipas, the bishop of the church, was executed. He uses this word among you. Not just one of you, but among you. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if while we're gathering together and we're here worshiping, someone were to come in or the government were to come in and to take Pastor Joe out and execute him. Amen. Thank you, sister. Don't mess with Joyce. Amen. Somebody say amen there. Why do you think I recruit the football team? Amen. Look here. See these guys right here? Amen. I appreciate that. Thank you. We have a pretty good security team here, by the way. Amen. You may not know, but we have a good security team here. Praise the Lord. But while they were worshiping, while they were gathering, he was martyred. And the Lord says, I see it. I know it. And I know that you're, you're, you're in a battle and you're in a struggle and, and you're right the idea is, he says, we're Satan's seed is, we're Satan's throne as we would call it. You know what many of us would call it? We consider it a stronghold, where Satan's stronghold is. I don't know if you've ever been places where you can sense and you can see where Satan's stronghold is. There are times I've been in homes where Satan has a stronghold and you can sense it, you can feel it. I've been in, uh, on missions trips and places on mission field in the Middle East. And uh, I remember in Amman, Jordan, you just, just landing there, you could feel it. I've gone to places in Mexico and uh, in Honduras. And I, don't, I would encourage you, watch that new movie. How many of you have seen that new movie that's just out, The Sound of Freedom? How many of you? I've, amazing movie. Go watch it. And I'm telling you, that's one of Satan's strongholds in this country. It is. And that, that place, Tegucigalpa, where, where the whole story begins, that brings goosebumps because I've been there twice and been on missions trips. And that, that city there in Honduras is one of the most dangerous places on, on planet Earth. 
There's others, but it's right up there. It's one of the most dangerous places. It's not even safe. And let me tell you, it's not just about the safety, but there is a spiritual, spiritual darkness. There is a spiritual wickedness there. There is what we would call strongholds. Jesus says to this church, he says to the church of Pergamos, in the midst of, of Satan's stronghold, he says, you're still holding fast. You're still living for me. And you're, you're still striving to hold fast my name. So much so that even one of the pastors was martyred, was executed for the faith. He says, I see it, and I love this. He even names him by name. Jesus Christ names him by name, and he says, I remember Antipas, Antipas and, and, and how he was killed among you. Let me remind you of something. God knows your name, amen? He knows who you are. And when you stand for him and when you live for him and when you serve him, he knows. He takes good records. He comforts this church. We'll see that in a few moments. But he does have a confrontation. He confronts this church. He challenges this church. And please understand, as we study here, he says that there were some of you. There were some among you. So he's not making a blanket statement on the church as an entirety or the church as a whole, but there is a, a, a confrontation. He challenges this church and he says in verses 14 through 16, he says, there are, there are a few things I have against you. He says, there are some things that I need to confront you about. I love how the Lord, he starts with complimenting them, Amen. But then he says, here, let me confront you. And he confronts them. And then at the end, as we'll see in a few moments, he comforts them once again. He gives them comfort. But he kind of sandwiches it. He compliments, he confronts, and then he comforts. But he says, there are some things that I am very upset about in this church. He mentions them, he says that there was the doctrine of, of Balaam. Boy, this could get really deep and we could go really far here. But he says, he says to the church, he says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Notice what he says, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. Balak was a, a king of Moab. And he says that the king of Moab enticed the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and notice this, by committing sexual immorality. And so John, through the, Spirit of the, Holy, through the Holy Spirit, makes reference and he uses this analogy from the Old Testament. We won't turn there, but I encourage you, if you want to read this week, Numbers chapter 22, all the way through 25, 26, there's kind of an account of a man by the, by the name of, of, of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. In essence, he was a prophet who, for many, the best way of putting it was in it for his own good. He wanted to make profit. He wanted to make profit. He says, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and committing sexual immorality. He says, this reference of this man named Balaam. I want to look at one other passage in Jude. 
Let's just go to Jude because it will help you have a little more context. In Jude, Jude warns, he says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says, when I started out to write this letter, I was going to encourage you in your faith and just encourage you. He says, but it was necessary for me to write you and to tell you you need to hold on to the faith. The rest of most of this chat, it's one little book, but the rest of the verses, he begins to warn about false teachers. People have come in and have deceived the church. But I want you to notice in verse 11, uh, verse 4, he says, they have crept in. He says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. I don't, and then he says, and turn the grace of our God into lewdness. And, and deny the only Lord and our God, Jesus Christ. Then down in verse number 11 in the same chapter, he, as he warns against false teachers, false preachers, false prophets, he says, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Notice this next statement. Have run greedily in the error, see that name there, of Balaam, for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. He gives a number of examples. The one we want to highlight is Jude mentions this man, this prophet by the name of Balaam. And if you were to go back to Numbers, back in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, there's an amazing, powerful story. But it's as Moses is leading the people out, and as they're, as they're on their journeys, there was a, a prophet by the name of, of, of Balaam. And he was used by Satan, if you will, to deceive God's people. In fact, uh, the king of Moab, the princes and the king of Moab wanted to try to create some type of alliance with the nation of Israel. But that wasn't going to happen. And so he wanted for, this, for Balaam to come and in the name of God curse the people of Israel. And Balaam says, well I, well, I can't do that, and I won't do that. And he says, even if you offer me all of your wealth and all of your treasuries, he says, I won't do that. And it's an interesting story because what you'll find is this, is that Balaam is on his way to go meet with, 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 with Balak, the king of Moab. And on his way there, some of you might remember this part of the story, he's riding his donkey. And as he's riding his donkey, the angel of the Lord stands in the path and keeps him from being able to keep going. And the Bible says that the donkey ran down into the field. And so we have Balaam taking out a stick and he begins to beat his donkey. I mean, he beats it and beats it and beats it and he gets back on the donkey and continues on the path. As the donkey continues on the path a little bit farther, the Bible says that there's kind of a narrow passageway, rocks on both sides, and the angel of the Lord appears again. And the donkey refuses to move forward and begins to try to turn around. But because it's a narrow passageway, it can't. And it crushes this prophet, crushes Balaam's leg into the rocks. 
And Balaam gets angry again. And the Bible says he takes out his rod and he begins to beat the donkey and curse this donkey and beat it profusely. He gets back on the donkey a third time. And he begins to continue on his journey. And once again, it says in a very narrow passageway, the angel of the Lord is standing there. Balaam, this prophet, does not see the angel of the Lord. And the donkey refuses. In fact, the donkey lays down. When the donkey lays down, the Bible says that the prophet Balaam takes out his stick again and begins beating him and beating him and beating him. And finally, God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks. How many of you have ever heard of this story in the Bible? The donkey speaks. Why are you doing it? I have been loyal. I have been faithful. What are you doing? And what, what have you done? And what blows my mind is that the prophet starts talking back to him, you know? They're having a conversation. They're just talking back and forth. And he says, well, he says, if I didn't, you would have died. He says, because there was an angel of the Lord in the path. And if I didn't do what I did, you would have died. And the Bible says that then his eyes are opened. And he sees the angel Lord with his sword drawn. And the angel Lord rebukes Balaam and says, what in the world were you doing and why were you doing this? And he says, I would have killed. He said, had it not been for the donkey, I would have killed you and let the donkey live. And Balaam, he repents and he confesses. It doesn't tell us in the book of Numbers, but let me just talk to you about something. The Bible is an amazing commentary on the Bible. Because the Old Testament doesn't reveal to us the heart of Balaam. But here's what we understand. When we read what John tells us here in Revelation, and when we read what Jude tells us, we find out that Balaam actually was in it for profit. And he was going to go and... And later, the Bible tells us, we don't know all the circumstances, but he, he gives insight to the land of Moab on how to deceive and trick God's people to lead them, to lead them into idolatry. And so the Lord warns us, it's interesting. Because what happens in Numbers chapter 25 is this, is that God's people, the nation of Israel, and I think it's a beautiful picture, follow me, they begin to marry and intermarry with the unbelieving Moabites. The Bible says that as they began to intermarry, they began then to worship their gods. And they not only began to worship their false gods, but they began to make offerings to Baal. Remember Baal? Baal oftentimes received human sacrifice. You can go even to this day to the Middle East. I've seen the altars to Baal and they've actually found human bones. Human bones. Bones of small children. Child sacrifice. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that one of the great sins that God was so upset and so angry about is that God's people began to offer up their children on these altars to Molech and Baal. Child sacrifice. 
Jesus confronts the church. And he says, within your church, you have those who are going in the way of Balaam. And what this is, a, I believe this picture analogy is this. is He says, they're, in the, they're going in the way or the doctrine of Balaam. Meaning this, follow me now, that they are intermarrying with the world. And what, I, what I'm saying by that and what I mean and what I think is more, don't take it in such a physical sense, take it in a spiritual sense, is this, is that the church of Pergamos, that there were many within the church who were beginning to compromise. If there was one word that you could say that, that represented the church of Pergamos is that they were a compromising church, meaning that they were trying to fit in with the world. They began to adapt and adopt the things of the world, so to speak, or their own culture and their community. They were literally married to the city of Pergamos. They began to, the Bible says, fall into sexual immorality. They began to indulge in the things. And the idea is this, is that they were, when we say intermarried, the idea is this, is that they were trying to keep Christianity, but also be cultural, culturally relevant. Oh boy, is this a message for the church today? Oh boy. We now have churches and pastors, churches who are now saying that abortion is not sin and that abortion is not murder and abortion is not wrong. Can I tell you something? That is a church that is compromising and trying trying to be culturally relevant and trying to, if you will, compromise what they truly believe in order to fit in with the world. The Lord warns later, he says, I may have to come down there and set things straight. Think about this. Someone bought me this shirt. Thank you. Genesis 9:16 and Revelation 4:3. But anyway, I love this shirt. I'm going to start wearing this to the gym. Start wearing this around town. Taking the rainbow back. Amen. You know what's sad? 25 or 50 years ago, every church would stand for this. Correct? Every church would say, let's make a stand. Now we have to tiptoe. Now we have to be even afraid to say, take the rainbow back. We have to, we have to be culturally, culturally relevant. We have, to, we have to compromise the truth of God's word we have to, so that we can fit in with today's culture and today's society. And by the way, it's major denominations, and lots of churches are now doing it. Come on now. We're going to compromise what the Bible says to be true. May I say this? I love what the scripture says. Let God be true and every man a liar. You see, this letter to Pergamos is a letter to us today. Would you agree, church? That it's just as relevant to us today because we have, we, we, we have some things that we have to really look at and say, are we willing to make a stand where the Bible makes a stand? Or are we going to compromise? The word compromise, it can be used various ways. 
But just so you know, it's not always a good thing. One of the definitions of compromise is this. To change, to cha uh, a change that makes something worse and that is done, that is not done for a good reason. A change that makes something worse but is not done for a good reason. Wow. Do you realize that there are churches right now, denominations, major denominations, major, major movements that are completely split, completely separating and splitting because now they are ordaining homosexual pastors and lesbian pastors. And everyone says, it's okay. And they're even trying to use scripture to say that, that it's acceptable. Can I tell you something? The Lord tells us here to this church of Pergamos. He says, that compromising church better watch out because I may come with the sword and clean house. I can't believe that we've come to a point <laughs> that the world has so corrupted the church that something as precious and as beautiful in God's command. And when you look at the context of the rainbow, like how can we not? Like if you just know just a few Bible stories, just the just a little bit about the Bible. What was happening on planet Earth? What was it? It was sexual immorality for why God sent the flood. That man was violent and continually thought evil, continually was doing evil, continually, where God was so, it repented him. The Bible says that he, he said, I have to start all over. But there was one man who found grace in the eyes of God. Amen. Known as family. And we're going to take that precious promise from God and the, the rainbow and we're going to corrupt it. But it is so sad because many of the, many of the, listen to me, here's the point. The whole point is this, is that the church compromised. The church compromised so much that they were no longer impacting Pergamos. But Pergamos was impacting the church. Can I say this? That we have to be cautious. We have to be careful. We have to take the warnings that Christ has here to these seven churches, and we need to look at them and see where we fit. Amen? And what we have to realize is this, is as a church, we are here to be having impact on our community, not the community necessarily impacting us. Does that make sense? We should be impacting the culture. The culture should not be impacting us. And before we get too judgmental of this church, let's be reminded that all of us struggle with, with this idea of compromise. I guarantee all of us have been there at times through pressure and peer pressure and through those around us. How many of you would admit that you'd say, yeah, there's times where I know in my own spirit, just in my everyday life, or in certain, in certain areas of my life or certain things that there have been times where, yes, I've compromised something I believed. Or I compromised my morals. I'll tell you, young people struggle with this. Yes, they have morals. But when they get in, in that pressure and everyone around them is pressuring them to do it, all of a sudden what happens is we compromise our morals, right, to fit in. 
How many have been there before? Don't lie. Been there, done it. The struggle. He says to this church, he says, I want you to know, I see it. And he challenges them in this area of compromise. Don't compromise. He says to the church as well, some of the other things he mentions is he says that he warns about that doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We mentioned that, the church of Ephesus. He, he warns, he says, I hate it. I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. As we studied before, it is, literally means this, where the, laity, where the laity is conquered, to be conquered. The etymology of the word is the idea of laity conquer or people conquer. It was this, is that there was a hierarchy. One thing that the Lord hates is when man rules over Christians and not the spirit ruling over Christians. And he says, you better repent. You better repent, or he says, I will come quickly. He says, repent, or I'm going to come. I get this idea of when my brother and I were in the back seat of the car screwing around, and my dad would say, you better straighten up, or I'm going to come back there. I was like, how are you going to do that while you're driving? But anyway, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Better watch out. You guys better knock it off. We'd be gone down the highway, and he'd be like, you guys better, you know, or I'm going to come back there. And I was like, I'd like to see you do that. That, that's, that would be talented, you know. But the Lord's saying, you better watch out. You better be on guard. You see, this church wanted the approval of their culture. They wanted the acceptance of their culture. And the Lord warned, and he said, listen, you should be seeking my approval. You should be accepting my, you want my acceptance. And may I say this? I want to make this very clear. I will have to stand before God for what I teach and what I preach or what I do and don't teach and preach. And I take that very seriously. And I have to struggle myself with, the, with, the, with this struggle of compromise. Do we compromise to fit in to try to gain the approval of this world. But can I tell you something? We should be far more concerned with his approval than the approval of what this culture demands of us. Amen? He finishes the letter, because I'm running out of time, with this comfort. He comforts them. Once again, he uses a statement, he who overcomes, to those who overcome. Revelation 12, 10, 11 tells us how we overcome. How do we overcome? He says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his, of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. That's Satan. He loves to accuse us, right? Who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We're on the winning side. Amen. But he says this, and they overcame him. Speaking of the accuser of the brethren, Satan, he says, they overcame him. How? by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. They were willing to die for their faith. And he says they overcome. How do you and I overcome, church? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And he says to them, to those who overcome, he promises them, he says, the hidden manna. The hidden manna. Look with me in John chapter 6. Jesus is referencing the time in the Old Testament when God's people... We're living on the manna, the bread that God sent down from heaven. 
It's all symbolism. It was all a picture of Jesus Christ who will become the bread of life. Listen to what Jesus said. Our Father, he says, ate the manna. Uh, our fathers, I'm sorry, ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, listen to these words, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is that bread of heaven. When he says to them, to those who overcome, he says, the idea is this, that you'll be promised that hidden manna. Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. And that we do not need this world's approval. We do not need this world's acceptance. All that should matter to us is the approval of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what should matter. And he says to those who overcome, he says, you will be given the, the bread of life. You will, and Jesus Christ is that bread of life. He says, you'll be given that hidden manna. You'll be blessed. It's the idea of his approval and his acceptance. He makes another interesting statement. There's debate on what this means. But he promises the believers, he speaks about this white stone that has a new name. And what is this white stone? There's a couple ideas to this. And I'll just give you two thoughts. But I do believe that what Jesus is, is saying is spiritual. He's not saying you're just going to, I'm going to give you this white stone, you know, like my daughter gives me stones all the time, you know. But he says there's a white stone with your name on it. There are two possibilities. One, there was a custom back in that time in the Greek world that when someone stood before a judge, after the judge would hear the testimony there was a white stone and a black stone that would be placed into like a clay pot. The black stone would mean that there's going to be condemnation. You will be judged. The white stone meant that you were acquitted, that there is acquittal. Many people believe that John, knowing who he's writing to, was using this analogy, and the Lord Jesus Christ is using this analogy, that the, to those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb, that there is no condemnation, and you will receive that white stone. How cool is that? Amen? And that when we stand before the Lord, we will not be guilty, but we will be acquitted of all of our transgressions because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I think that's pretty cool. Amen? There's another possibility, and that is this, that in the Greco-Roman games, the Olympics, which people are preparing for even right now, that during the times of the, the Olympics, that those who would win, that they would receive literally a white stone with their name written on it. They would receive a wreath that they would wear upon their head, the crown. They would be given tons of liberty and power in a place of position, but also that there was a stone that had their name 
written upon it. And so some people believe that the idea is this, is that it's the picture of, of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, regardless of which one and what it means. Let me just encourage you with this, is that we overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And when you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. And he tells this church, he says, I'm comforting you with, with the fact that all the approval you ever need is my approval. Do not compromise to seek the approval in the acceptance of this culture, but rather seek my approval. And he says, when you have my approval and when you overcome by the blood of the lamb, the idea is this, your names are written in heaven. Amen. And he says, there is nothing that this world can do to touch you or harm you because you are mine. You are mine. And I'm thankful I am thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, when I stand before the Lord, there is no condemnation, amen, to those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you stay, stand and pray with me, please, this morning. Lord, I pray that...